Hello and welcome to the Press Gallery. I am your guest host this week. I'm Dave Breckenridge. I'm filling in for Emma Graney, who may or may not still be gallivanting about with elephants and hanging out by waterfalls zebras. in Africa. Zebras, or as I remember Noah, uh, Trevor Noah on one of his stand-up specials called them zebras. Zebras, yeah. yeah zebras. Americans are we weird. Zebra. Like Debra and zebra. Uh, this is the Jason Kenny Goes to New York edition. I believe it's episode 291. We're creeping up Ooh. on 300. Maybe it's 292. Um, <laughs> you know, when you get up to that many episodes, who's counting really? Although I expect Emma to bring a cake. There will be cake. 300. Yeah. Um, today, we're going to be talking about uh, Premier Jason Kenney, who uh, is on the road trying to drum up investment for Alberta, meeting with uh, people from think tanks and financial sector in New York. He's off to Ohio as well to meet with Doug Ford uh, and other industry officials in... Doug Ford isn't an Ohio industry official, but we're... <laughs> <laughs> He'll be meeting with Doug Ford and, and Ohio industry officials to talk about trade as well. We'll also get to some concerns about um, RCMP costs being who will be paying for RCMP in certain rural municipalities. And we'll also have an update on uh, the court challenge against Bill 24, which was an NDP piece of legislation that was being challenged in the courts. And, and so we'll have an update on what's going on with that. Uh, today in studio with me, we have education reporter Janet French. Hello. Hi. Hi. And then we have uh, political columnist Keith Geron. How's it going, Keith? Um, it's going well. That's good. That's good. It's a Friday. It's, as I said, September 20th. Um, it's sunny outside in Edmonton. It's a beautiful day. A, I yeah. biked here in a t-shirt. Nice. I, I walked in a raincoat because it was raining in my neighborhood and then I was standing on a bus and it was all warm and stuff. But Aww. listeners don't care about that. So let's jump into the meat of it. Um, <laughs> Premier Jason Kenney, uh, following in the path of many of his predecessors, uh, trying to uh, promote Alberta business, particularly Alberta oil, but pr trying to promote Alberta at the heart of the financial district in New York City. Janet, what can you tell me about uh, the Premier's trip this week? What I can tell you, first of all, is that uh, on the first day, somebody shot vertical video of him on the streets of New York. Shame. And I shook my fist at the, at the video gods. Friends do not let friends shoot vertical video. Although for Instagram stories, you can... It, you need vertical video. <laughs> oh my God, he's defending vertical video. I, I don't like it from a cinematic point of view, but Who's I know TV some Whose TV in their house is vertical? It's not meant for TV. It's meant anyway, for the phone. Okay, I'm over it. Get Clearly, it, I've moved on <laughs> from the vertical video. Uh, so yeah, he's been posting these little video updates. And then on Wednesday, there was a more than hour long conference call, teleconference call, where reporters could call in and check in to see what uh, Mr. Kenny was up to on his travels. So he said mainly that he has been meeting sort of back to back and dining and speaking at engagements uh, with high level investors, people who are really nerdy about the energy markets and also real estate, which I thought was interesting. Apparently he is promoting Alberta's uh, relatively cheap housing prices compared to other jurisdictions and also compared to several years ago in Alberta. Uh, <laughs> the one <laughs> sad, silver, sad trombone for the property owners. Yeah, the, the one silver lining to the downturn. Hey, everybody, real Wanna estate's not as expensive as it used to be in Alberta. <laughs> All the more reason to come here, people. Yeah. Just don't try and sell yours. Yeah. Right now. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so, yes, he was meeting and, and also with some politicians. He did a bunch of uh, media interviews with Bloomberg and financial journalists in New York, kind of promoting Alberta. And uh, what he really wants is people to come and 
invest, I suppose, in energy projects in Alberta and other, although he didn't really get into what the other is. Um, and he sort of let a few interesting nuggets uh, loose in over the week as he was, you know, doing these various interviews. Uh, one was that there might be a bit of a trade-off for, pe- for companies that are willing to buy or pick up some of the NDP government's oil by rail contracts. Right, because so, the, the province is now trying to sell off those contracts to the private yeah, sector. Yeah, so you may remember that uh, the NDP government trapped a couple billion bucks on uh, buying up 4,400 rail cars to mm-hmm. get uh, to get oil moving out of Alberta in the, with the lack of pipeline capacity. And this was a controversial deal that the UCP government campaigned on canceling. The problem is you can't just cancel it. You got to yeah, sell it. <laughs> so so they're working. He said that there's 16 different bidders that uh, may or may not be interested in buying this. And perhaps if you are come to one of these deals to pick up some of the, if you're a private company and you pick up some of these oil by rail contracts, there might be some room there uh, for easing the curtailment cap. So right now, oil companies are subject to a limit of how much oil they can ship out, and it's to prevent oil prices from dropping too low in mm-hmm. Alberta. And so um, if they can move the oil out that's beyond their cap, they might be able to exceed the cap, which would then presumably improve their profits and increase our resource revenues. So that was one little nugget. Uh, Another interesting thing is that he said that according to various technological improvements in the way oil moves and various pipelines, you know, coming online and the uptake, he hopes, of more oil moving out by rail, that he thinks that the export capacity of Alberta oil will increase over the next year by about 150,000 to 200,000 barrels per day for people who care about things like barrels per day. Mm-hmm. And then after New York, he, he left New York on Wednesday and he headed off to Ohio. Ohio. He's attending the North American Strategy for Competitive Network Continental Reunion. Thank you for looking up that name because I couldn't remember it. NAS, NASCO or something. NASCO. So this is all anyway. related to energy, right? Yes. Yeah. So again, uh, trying to sell the idea of Alberta as a great place to invest in Ohio. Uh, he went to the refinery to draw attention to uh, a legal issue actually in the US, which is Enbridge's Line 5, which mm-hmm. runs from just under Lake Superior, through the U.S., through the Michigan Peninsula, which we have both driven through. Uh, it's beautiful country there. Lovely. Yeah, uh, lovely. Yeah. <laughs> have you been to the Michigan I Peninsula? Have, yes. We've all been to the – fun fact. Um, so the line runs through there, through Michigan, and then it crosses over this kind of sensitive waterway between two great lakes. I forgot which two great lakes. Um, but it crosses over into Michigan and then runs down south back to Sarnia, Ontario, because as you know, there's a blorp of Canada that goes underneath the U.S. Anyway, so line five. Uh, the state government in Michigan is trying to decommission a little section of that pipeline that runs underneath the Great Lakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's only maybe like seven or eight kilometers long or something. But they're saying it's a super sensitive area. If there's a spill there, first of all, there's really worried that it's susceptible to a spill because it's ships go through there and there it's at a risk of an anchor smacking into it. There was a there was a near leak last year. And they're saying it's too ecologically sensitive. It would cause a big disaster if oil spilled out there. And so apparently approximately 540,000 barrels per day of Alberta oil moves through this pipeline down through the U.S. to Sarnia. And uh, a lot of it goes to this refinery in Toledo, Ohio. So he was there to try and draw attention to this. The state is trying to legally shut that section down. There's some countersuits going on. It's a big schmozzle. Okay. And he's also going to meet today. He's going to have a fireside chat at 
11.30 our time today with uh, Premier Doug Ford of Ontario and also the governor of Wisconsin, who is Republican. Um, and his name is Mike DeWine, I think. Anyhow, uh, so they are also going to chat about this uh, Line 5 pipeline issue and also... Ohio Governor Mike Ohio. DeWine. Yeah, no, Wisconsin, no, Wisconsin actually. Wisconsin? You said Wisconsin. Yeah. Oh, uh, states, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Wisconsin actually has so a Democratic governor now, but... Uh, so oh. I watch CNN, sadly. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> Keith, this trip that Kenny took, he's... Not exactly treading new ground here. This is no. something that, you know, premiers dating back, even I imagine to Ralph Klein, but Ed Stelmack certainly made hay of the importance of going to the States to promote Alberta, Alison Redford, yep. Jim Prentice, even Rachel Notley. They all, what is, what is Kenny trying to accomplish with these trips and why is it important that he makes these trips. Yeah, I mean, the the pattern is pretty much the same, right? Going back to to Ralph Klein, that uh, you know the agenda is you, you go to New York or Washington for a few days, you uh, meet with some important people, you speak at an important engagement, you have dinners. Um, and you come away very bullish about, hey, I've look at all the connections I've made, laid, look at the groundwork I've laid. Um, this is going to have big dividends for Alberta. And, and they all come back from these trips feeling very enthusiastic. And Kenny was like that as well. When you heard him on the, the conference call, you couldn't sort of help but be swept up in the uh, enthusiasm he had for the success. And he mentioned, you know, how many people he met who said that they had never met an Alberta leader before when, we, when of course, we know that uh, a lot of Alberta leaders have been there. They may just not have met Alison Redford or Jim Prentice or Ed Stelmack. Um, they have met uh, Jason Kenney. So, I mean, the value of these trips, though, is really, really difficult to gauge, right? We don't, know the long-term impacts. We have to remember that Alberta is a really, really small player for 4.3 million people. It doesn't even fill half of New York City. So, I mean, let's keep, let's keep things in mind here. On the other hand, I think it is important we make these trips. This is where, this is the financial capital of the world in many respects. This is where people who make decisions about billions of dollars are. And Alberta has very large oil reserves. So there are some, there is some interest in our province. And Kenny does have a little bit of a message to sell right now. There, obviously, uh, investors are concerned, uh, as Janet mentioned, about the, uh, the cur curtailment that's been going on in Alberta. They're concerned about the, the transport capacity issues, the pipeline issues, right? And Kenny did have a few things to say there. There was a victory on line three. Uh, recently this week, the uh, Minnesota Supreme Court uh, rejected an appeal there that was trying to shut down that project. So that that's a step that line three uh, can potentially go ahead. We're seeing progress on uh, the Trans Mountain line as well. Uh, so that's a story he can tell. And the other thing he mentioned, this was the week when uh, some rebels in, in Yemen bombed uh, or had a drone attack against some Saudi oil facilities. And Kenny said, well, look, uh, the Middle East is really unstable. And this is another example of showing how the risk there has really been undervalued by the markets. And guess what? Alberta, we don't have terrorists. We don't have uh, attacks on our oil facilities. This is a stable place to get your oil, right? And it's interesting because volatility, um, geopolitics, this is 
normally been seen as a kind of vulnerability for Alberta. We are subject to the whims of geopolitics. Kenny's trying to turn that around and say, no, this is actually a source of provincial strength because we don't have these issues centered uh, on us here in Alberta. So those are important messages to take to these people. Whether it actually turns into anything, we don't know. Uh, and it is really hard to gauge. But this really is more about politics back at home, right? Kenny needs to be seen, any Alberta elite, Alberta leader needs to be seen to be hanging around with the movers and shakers of the financial world. Uh, and that that is important for Albertans to see. And to that effect, just like his, his predecessors, he is at least accomplishing that and, and, and putting Alberta's face out on a national stage. Is, like one thing that gets talked about in relation to oil and, you know, people want to, are opposing pipelines and the idea that Alberta isn't telling its story well enough, this kind of plays into that. And that's, I think even Jason Kenney has talked about that in the past, that Alberta needs to sell itself beyond it. Right, exactly. And whether these trips, uh, you know, can help do that, I think they probably do to a a small degree. I mean, he did get some ink in Bloomberg. It does sound like he was at an event with the Wall Street Journal. Maybe they'll write something, or at least uh, their writers will have Alberta maybe more in mind than they did prior to the trip. But again, um, you know, these are, I think, small ripples in a a very, very large world financial capital that uh, has a lot of people coming there looking for attention. All right, switching gears now, want to talk about rural policing. I know it seems like a broad jump. Now, as the province is still putting together its budget, which is due to come out uh, in late October after... uh, or November, they won't even. They're saying or fall. November. We, okay. we pressed. Uh, we pressed a. I thought we had finance a minister Travis Taves on this on Monday. And he was no, just like, no. The, the the rumor fall. is October thirtieth at this point. That seems to be the date a lot of people are talking about, but it hasn't been confirmed. So. It's a little too close to Halloween, and you're going to get all those <laughs> puns about horror anyway. But the um, headline writers are just. So there was a little nugget in the Pinocchio News this week, and the headline was "Rural Municipalities Bracing for Possible RCMP Cost Hike." And essentially, there was a webinar for uh, chief administrative officers in places like Pinoca County uh, with provincial officials and essentially meant that the province could be looking at municipalities to cover the bill for their RCMP policing. Right now, the province foots most of the bill. Some places, they pay a little more. Like in this story, it talks about how Pinoca... The county of Pinocchio pays a little extra, so they get two enhanced positions, a school resource officer and a general investigation officer. They cover the cost of that. Um, But Pinocchio's CAO, Charlie Cutforth, was quoted in this story as uh, saying that, you know, he heard via provincial government webinar that uh, the proposal would mean uh, counties and urban municipalities with less than 5,000 people would begin to pay for policing services that they currently are not responsible for. And he he's quoted as saying, the bottom line for the county is nearly $393,000 based on our equalized assessment. This is not based on demand for service, but seems they looked around and thought of who would be available to pay. It also doesn't change the level of service or increase the number of members. It's purely a matter of the rurals kindly start paying. The one thing that this story doesn't have, unfortunately, is response from the government. Paul McLaughlin, the county reeve, talks about uh, that he had heard through discussions at the rural municipalities of Alberta that the organization which represents urban municipalities like Rimby and Pinocchio, so I b- believe that would be the AUMA, has been pushing this proposal. So that takes us to Wednesday. I, I want to say RMA. 
The RMA. There's sorry. too many MAs. Oh, anyway. rural municipalities. Yeah, so, anyway. um, yes. Uh, like Rimby and Pinocchio has been pushing this proposal and then to smaller towns, it becomes a big wedge issue. So as I said, the one thing it doesn't have is comment from the province. Uh, the NDP, I assume, saw this and, and held a press conference this week. Janet, you were there. What did they have to say? Yeah, the NDP actually had some some information from multiple locations. So I think that, so to, to back up, Justice Minister and Solicitor General Doug Schweitzer right now is on a four-week tour. A lot of ministers right now, as there's no session, are kind of making their way around the province, talking to constituents, um, you know, particularly since we're in federal election mode, maybe selling themselves a little bit, selling the conservative brand. And so uh, Doug Schweitzer has is spending not an entire four weeks, but there's a bunch of dates booked all over Alberta during the next four weeks where he's meeting with various municipalities, which would be, you know, rural municipalities, small towns, villages, whatever, um, about policing. And he's it sounds like he's floating this idea of a cost-sharing model for policing. And so the NDP managed to get a hold of the slide deck at one of these presentations. And they also have a transcript of uh, the conversation at one of these meetings. And we're not sure where, what town or county or whatever these these meetings took place in. Um, but what what the information says, and they released it, uh, basically it would affect 291 small towns and rural communities, which would be approximately a fifth or 20% of Alberta's population, um, small hamlets and so forth. And they're they're, they've got six scenarios outlined in this document where they're saying, okay, right now in these towns with fewer than 5,000 people, the government, we think, pays about 100% of policing costs. And the reason that this arrangement exists, Rachel Notley, that's the NDP leader, uh, says, is that it Otherwise, it would create this patchwork where small towns that didn't have a lot of tax base or much money to work with, that they wouldn't have very high levels of policing. And so it's almost like a little socialistic, you know, the level of service should be the same across the province, no matter where you live or know what your, know what about your tax base is like. So um, there, it sounds like they're trying to roll that back a little bit and say, hey, like municipalities should be picking up a portion of these costs, whether it's as low as 15% or as much as 70% of the total cost of policing. So right now, um, the policing services to these small places cost the province $232 million a year. Um, they're looking to recoup as much as $157 million of that. Um, and they're saying uh, in the presentation, like the NDP didn't calculate these numbers. They were right in the right in the, in the the transcript of this meeting that it could be if the entire cost was put on a small town taxpayer, it could be as much as or as little as $145 per person or as much as $406 more per person that you're paying on your property taxes. And so what the NDP said in this press conference is, well, A, like, hello, didn't you just campaign on, you know, rural crime being a big problem? And was, didn't the United Conservative Party say that this was an, an issue that they had promised to tackle? And how does this help? So number one, they're concerned that um, that police service could be pared back because people like taxpayers will balk at the idea of paying $400 more in their tax bill. Um, or they're saying to, to engage the same level of service, they might pull back on other municipal services. So maybe they don't keep the pool open as many hours a week, or maybe they cut the Zamboni driver from the rank or whatever, that, it, that it's going to affect small town services in one way or another. And a statement from Justice Minister Doug Schweitzer, he, he disputes the NDP's characterization saying, quote, our government made a commitment to Albertans to consult on, pol on a police funding model 
that became broken under the NDP were investing more in policing, not less. Keith, what may he be? He re- <laughs> what may he be referring to in relation to this idea that the policing model? was quote broken. Well, I mean, it's, it's a bit of a cryptic answer. It doesn't actually answer much of the question. Uh, it doesn't specifically deny any of the allegations in the, in the presentation or that the NDP is bringing up. I, it's interesting. I remember when, I think I remember when this policing model was first engaged and there was 2005, co- 2005. I asked this question in the press right, conference. Ralph, I was like, was Ralph this Klein. your model? No, no, it wasn't. Yeah. Model. You know, so it was the Ralph Klein era. And so it was controversial at the time because it was thought, Hey, why do these smaller communities get a break? Whereas, you know, if you have 5,100 people, then you have to pay for more of your policing costs. Whereas if, if you're under that, um, you know, just send a hundred people away <laughs> and then you can suddenly get all your policing costs covered. So, I mean, it was controversial when the province put this in. However, it has now been entrenched for 14, 15 years. And I think a lot of those communities have come to depend on it. It really was kind of a break for them um, because at the time they were said they were burdened with these costs that the taxpayers uh, just couldn't handle it. So now the politics of this are quite fascinating because yes, rural Alberta overwhelmingly voted for the UCP, in part based on an agenda that said we are going to improve rural policing, in part based on an agenda that said we need to cut costs and get the provincial treasury in better shape. I'm not sure how honest the UCP was. I'm not sure how uh, aware UCP voters may have been that some of the services on which they depend might be the the services that are targeted here to reduce those costs. And so now we're finding out, and this may just be the tip of the iceberg. It may not just be policing costs. It may be healthcare. It may be education. Maybe other things that uh, rural communities are are not necessarily prepared for. But to suggest uh, to these folks that they may have to pay four hundred dollars more per year, I don't think that's going to go well. On the, uh, you're right. It may not go well. I know how people get their backs up in Edmonton uh, when property taxes go up. I see those letters to the editor uh, that come in. On the flip side, though, when the progressive conservative government brought in that model in 2005, we were paid in full. Uh, the debt was paid off. Yep. We were riding uh, a wave of surplus budgets. Enormous energy uh, revenues. Enormous energy revenues. Uh, and the Klein government was, you know, spending like... Uh, Drunken sailors. Exactly. <laughs> you know, spending like a government that had lots of oil money and had paid off their debt. Yeah. Um, they were throwing billions of dollars at municipalities. Uh, there was the creation, what became the MSI program, the Municipal Sustainability Initiative program uh, started under Ralph Klein in advance of the 2004 election. There was a lot of money being thrown at municipalities. The current fiscal picture in Alberta right now is quite different. Um, and I think, you know, the the Kenny government may be betting that his rural voters may see that goal as equally as important as rural crime. But it is a balancing act for them to try and say, we are concerned about rural policing and rural crime uh, but then also, look, we don't have the money to pay for some of these things. So the municipalities have to pick up the tab. We have to look at old programs that may not be working for the current fiscal picture, which will be tricky for them. Um, last up today, we're going to talk about uh, an update to a court challenge that had been going on in Southern Alberta, if I'm not mistaken. It was it, just all of it. Can somebody make like a breaking news beeping sound? <laughs> I don't have. <laughs> there you go. You did it. Um, there, Carson, you don't even have to add. Carson's our producer. You don't have to add these contacts. 
I know this was for all of Alberta, but it was in was it Lethbridge, Medicine Hat? Where was they? Oh, where did they file I the think challenge? Medicine Hat. It was wherever they could get before a judge. Yes. So uh, I'm trying to remember the year they filed this challenge. Um, it, it must have been 2017 or 2018. So. Bear with me here. Uh, You may remember that the NDP government had some concerns about uh, the law governing school rules around notification about kids who were participating in a gay-straight alliance in school, and also the issue of whether uh, there were enough rules to compel schools to make sure that students who are LGBTQ were well accommodated and felt safe and protected and, you know, comfortable asking for a place to change or whatever, in school. And so uh, the NDP government had a legal opinion showing that there were lots of loopholes in the existing legislation that came in under the Prentice government. So they uh, passed something called Bill 24, which was very controversial. It was opposed um, or just not voted on by members of the United Conservative Party when they were in opposition. And so uh, the way that they got around this was when the UCP was campaigning, They said they were going to replace the School Act, which was the piece of legislation amended, with the Education Act, which just naturally contained the old rules. Mm -hmm. And so some of the changes that were introduced were that a teacher or principal had to immediately grant uh, a student's permission to start start a gay-straight alliance club in their school if they asked, and that that they couldn't – the the, uh, job relied entirely on the principal making that decision. The school board couldn't interfere. They couldn't delay and so forth. And um, another change was that schools could not tell parents or really anybody who the members were in a gay-straight alliance. So uh, they were allowed to – a principal was only able to communicate, yes, there is a gay-straight alliance at the school or a human rights club, or no, there isn't. They couldn't say who was in it, what they were doing, and so forth. And the NDP said that there was a lot of law and rules that – generally prevented that from happening, but there was ambiguity and teachers were really worried and teachers were under pressure and they felt like they had to out students who were parts of these clubs. And so they changed the law to say like, no, there's no ambiguity. You can't, you can't say it. And so then uh, some of the private religious schools and parents who had concerns about what their kids were up to in school filed a legal challenge and said, hey, we have parental rights. We have a right to know what our kids are up to during school hours, even if it's extracurricular. Um, and the private schools, people who run some of the private schools, particularly religious ones, were saying, well, that doesn't really, we don't really want to be told what kind of policies we have to have when it maybe doesn't align with our beliefs about, you know, the definition of marriage being, you know, between a man and a woman and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. So uh, so they filed this challenge and it was a big, it became quite a thing where they filed lots and lots of affidavits, which have never been proven in court with various tales of things that may or may not have happened around uh, GSAs in school and kids being removed from school property to go learn about things. And the NDP has always said, like, no, like, sex ed is not supposed to be happening in gay-straight alliances. That's not what they're for. They're supposed to be places where students can go and talk about their feelings and their identity Mm -hmm. and maybe, you know, fundraise or do awareness posters about inclusion and how you should accept everybody regardless of their sexual orientation or gender identity. Anyhow, so where are we today? Uh, The news today is that now the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, who was organizing all these people and had was representing their plaintiffs in this lawsuit, say they are now dropping their suit against the government because the UCP government adopted the Education Act, which had the old rules, which takes out their main sticking points about um, making it really clear that parents can't be notified 
and um, also just a, a clause in the law that had referred to um, preventing or you don't have to tell parents if you're discussing sexually explicit or religious material in an extracurricular club. And the reason that was in there is because they say that should never have happened in an extracurricular club. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Got all <laughs> and that? So, and so the, the, the core challenge has been... Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Because the people who were against Bill 24... Well, they're saying like Bill 24 is dead, dead. gone, yeah. un- undone. So now I did ask back in July when when uh, what is now known as Bill 8, which reversed the rules and brought in the new Education Act. Um, I did ask some of these schools. I called most of them who were involved in the legal challenge to ask, and they were just all no comment, no comment. So apparently September 12th was the official date that they pulled the plug on the suit. Hmm. All right. Well, that's an interesting update. Thanks mm-hmm. for Okay, (laughs) moving on to our regular segment, Good Stuff from the Gallery, wherein we tell you how to spend your free time. Um, You know, anything interesting that we've read, seen, heard about, stared at? I don't know. (laughs) There's a story there. I guess. (laughs) Janet, kick us off. Oh, you're making me go, but doing all the talking. Um, When was the last time you stayed up too late watching a music video? A music video? I mean, I, in the spring, I stayed up really late watching a Childish Gambino perform at Coachella on the live stream. That counts. Does that, that counts. Count? Yeah, it was totally really counts. good, by the way. I'm just saying that I don't, like, I'm 41 years old. I don't watch a lot of music videos these days. Like, it's kind of a... It was Did you teen- watch the new Tom York one? Anima? No. No, it's good. It's on Netflix. Okay. So, right. I'm sorry. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Podcast. Um, so, um, the Lumineers have a new album. Does anyone like the Lumineers? Ho, hey. Yeah. So, you may know them from such songs as, hey... Oh, whatever. That wasn't one of my favorites. Anyway, they have a new album called Three, and it's, I don't know how, this is totally not about politics, but after after Chris gave us, you know, a recommendation of like 157 jazz tunes last week, I feel... I feel at liberty to recommend whatever I want. Anyway, so uh, they have a new album called Three. It's not called Three because it's their third album. It's called Three because it's done in three chapters and it's kind of a concept album. And it's all about, it's very dark. I'm in a dark place, so I'm happy to, you know, dark dark place albums are good. And uh, it's all about addiction and family dynamics, and it follows it follows three characters. And what's really cool about it is they released a set of really cinematic music videos that are done in chapter form with each song. So they've been releasing one chapter to go with each song each day since the album came out about a week and a half ago. So the last one, I think, finally came out yesterday. Hmm. And it's just, like, really gut-wrenching stuff like it's beautifully shot and the music is lovely and it's all very if you if you like you know wallowing in the in the self-destruction of families and addiction and i mean we all love to wallow (laughs) around this table (laughs) so check it out it's really good all right i'm gonna recommend a podcast it's part of a broader project that the new york times is working on Uh, it's part of the 1619 project the podcast is called 1619 It is referenced to uh, 400 years ago, a ship carrying enslaved Africans arrived in the English colony of Virginia. This uh, podcast series uh, examines the long shadow of uh, that ship landing in Virginia. Uh, It talks about how um, the effects of slavery kind of ripple through society today. It's very fascinating. It gives you a, uh, a look at American society that you may not have thought of before. Uh, it's really, uh, an, I think, an important project about race uh, in American society. I know that Canada's experience with slavery is not the same, but it's it's a 
it's easy to relate to considering we consume so much American culture and we're so influenced by American culture here that it is an interesting and important listen. Keith, bring us home. That sounds very interesting. I love history, so I'm going to check that out. Uh, I have a couple of uh, recommendations. Uh, one is a, a New York Times article um, with the headline, Worse Than Anyone Expected, Air Travel Emissions Vastly Outpace Predictions. Uh, strangely enough, the photo that uh, goes with this online story is of an Air Canada plane. I'm not sure Aww. why they uh, chose that one. but uh, <laughs> it's a, They're an easy whipping boy? I I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Somebody had a bad experience, apparently, want, like, you know, Delta <laughs> the New York Times. Or, you know, yeah. just sue them or something. Exactly. So, I mean, the headline basically explains it all, but there is a, a new study out there that suggests that uh, airline emissions, uh, which were already predicted to increase uh, in horrible ways, are in fact worse than <laughs> we're predicting. That's so depressing. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, so if you're taking a vacation like I am uh, shortly, um, yeah, feel bad about it. it. Feel, feel, you feel really, guilty really, really bad time. about it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. The other one is uh, a little more close to home. Uh, it's an Alberta Views article by uh, Trevor Toome, The Economist at the University of Calgary called Misplaced Anger, Western Alienation, and the Battle Over Equalization. And again, this is uh, building off a Globe and Mail article he wrote uh, earlier this year that just suggests that, yes, Albertans have a, a lot uh, that they might uh, want to complain about, a lot of legitimate complaints with the federal government. Equalization, maybe not one of them. All right. Well, thanks very much for that. Uh, Keith and Janet, thanks for joining me in studio. Uh, Emma Graney, your regular host, will be I assume she'll be back next week. You she know, better be. She, you know. <laughs> after all her African airline emissions have been yes, turned after into she the atmosphere. pollutes the atmosphere Good on her job, way Emma. home. <laughs> way to go, Emma. Uh, you know, so uh, listen for that next week. Don't forget, you can find us on all your favorite listening apps, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, I assume, or Google Podcasts, whatever it's called. So don't forget to look for us. We are called The Press Gallery. <laughs>